seriously popular. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The former nurse, Lucy Letby, has been found guilty of murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Between June 2015 and June 2016, babies who seemed to be doing reasonably well would suddenly collapse. Lucy Letby was the common factor. The verdicts make the 33-year-old Britain's most prolific baby killer. This was a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It's now a podcast about one of the worst serial killers in modern times. At 12.52pm on Friday, August the 18th, 2023, we brought you the news that a neonatal nurse was guilty of killing babies in her care. After a trial lasting for over 10 months and more than 110 hours of painstaking deliberation, the jury decided that Lucy Letby murdered seven babies at the Countess of Chester Hospital and she tried to kill six more. She was cleared of two further charges of attempted murder and the jury could not reach verdicts on six further allegations. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail. I've been in court throughout and have reported on the case as it developed. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week we've examined what's happened and brought you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So Liz, we've obviously heard all of the drama and the reaction from court to the verdict in this case. Lucy Letby is now one of the most prolific child killers in modern British history and she will go to prison for the rest of her life. She will die behind bars. And we know a lot of what Lucy Letby did to these children in the 12-month period between June 2015 and June 2016. Mm. But actually, what we don't know a lot about is how the police actually caught her and how they brought her to justice. Welcome to episode 54, Catching the Killer. So 
So, Liz, we now know a lot about how Lucy Letby killed and harmed the babies that were in her care over this court case lasting for 10 months. So this jury have been inside this courtroom now for the best part, actually, of a year. We know that she manipulated everybody around her, that she killed and harmed babies in plain sight. We also know that it was a very long time before police were brought in. And we know that Lucy Letby was able to continue this killing spree, if you like, for a very long time because nothing was done. For whatever reason, which we may learn as time goes on, she was not removed from the ward and she was allowed to continue on the ward for a long time. And it was, in fact, a year before the police were called in. And we were keen to know more about that process, weren't we, about how and when the police were called in and what happened then. Yeah, because obviously that period really wasn't touched on very much in the actual trial. It wasn't relevant for the evidence for the jury. And so we were really, really keen to know exactly why the police became involved and what happened when they were involved. So we sat down with the senior investigating officer in the case, Detective Superintendent Paul Hughes, And he took us back to the beginning when a letter arrived at the headquarters of Cheshire Police from the hospital and the police investigation began. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thanks for having me. Can I ask you about the investigation which you led and just the sort of moment, if you like, that it landed on your desk Mm. and how it began and when you realised, if there was a moment when you realised what you might be dealing with? Well... I was running the major investigation team over the Western Syndicate, the time Western area of Chester, which covers the Countess. So I was asked in May, I think it was, 2017, by our then head of crime to have a look at a a series of documents that had been brought into the command team, if you like, via a letter to the Chief Constable from the Countess of Chester Trust, asking if we can have a look at their investigation to see if we could in any way, shape or form, verify it or rubber stamp that to put the minds at rest based on a series of unexpected collapses and deaths. The letter had come in and the doctors, as you know now from the trial, had asked questions and the trust had, I think, done in their view what they could to answer them questions by going to the Royal College and by going to a doctor separately it was highlighted and going to a a QC and asking them questions and saying what do you think obviously Lucy Letby had been moved so the incidents had stopped and I think what they thought is have we done enough here to satisfy the the minds of the doctors and the nurses who are asking us the questions so it was it was for me to look at that. Those investigations couldn't come up with a medical cause for what happened Mm. but they hadn't pointed necessarily anything particularly sinister. So it was just that it was a mystery. Yeah, it was a mystery. And I think they did the only thing they could think of doing is asking the police, do you agree? Or do you think there's questions to answer? The viewpoint, again, was just it's difficult for anybody to grasp and really think, did anybody there really think somebody here is trying to kill and killing neonatal babies? And it's really difficult for anybody to come to terms with that. So it came to me and then I met with Stephen Breary and Rabbi Jayram and asked them to explain to me in a very short time scale we had why I should or should not take this forward to be investigated. And it was then where they explained to me babies in neonatal units 
they come in and they grow and they go home. Yeah. And although they are very, very fragile, mm. very delicate babies that need care, there's no expectation of death. There's no expectation of collapse. And sometimes, very sadly, a child is born in a condition where they expect maybe the baby will die or they expect the baby will have long-term genetic conditions. But they know that and they tell the parents that and they explain that and they make all the provisions for the parents to be with the child day and night, maybe sometimes sadly through its last hours. But what happened with these sequences is the babies were collapsing unexpectedly. So all of a sudden, from a picture of strength and from a picture of health, babies were suddenly collapsing and dropping and when they reviewed them, deaths or collapses, they couldn't explain why. To me, in making that decision, you know, do you think that question has been answered sufficiently? Putting myself in the shoes of a parent at that point and saying, well, would I accept that as an answer? No, I don't think it has been. So we declared an investigation at that point, not a criminal investigation, to substantiate whether a crime has been committed. And that's when we you know, sought advice from the National Crime Agency and you know, about how we go ahead and we appoint the relevant expert, the best expert we can have. And that's when I met with parents for the right. first time and explained to the parents that we were going to investigate the collapses of their children. And at that point, I only made the parents one promise. And the promise was that we would, as a team, collectively, find out exactly what, when, how, and where happened to their child. Can you walk us through the, the way you did this? So you walked away from Ravi Jayaram and Stephen Brewery yeah. and said, we need to go further and look at yes. this. But I'm right in thinking, Arthur, that you didn't look at this as one, all these babies as one investigation. You did it individually, and I was interested in why and how you did that. Well, we looked at it individually in respect of every case needed to be investigated on its own merits. In, a, in any normal murder investigation, we are led by actions and basically the actions go into the major incident room, they come out and a detective will go off and bring back a piece of the inquiry. In this case, when we started that way of working at the beginning, it was clear that it probably wasn't going to work. And the reason it was going to work is because you'd end up taking statements from a nurse who's been at one event and two events and three events. Yeah. yeah. And then straight away, you're asking a nurse really to recount one, two, three events maybe at the same time. And then if you've got one case that is explained and another case, it's not, how do you separate that evidence? Mm. And sort of sitting at Chester, scratching my head, working out how, how best to do this, really, I decided that we would allocate one case per detective and the reason I decided to do that was two reasons one it gives a unique ownership to a detective that they don't usually get the way we work major crime in this country but it also separates the potential sharing of the information initially so that other people's mindset would be altered by what they've heard in another investigation so Initially, is keep it separate to keep a sterile corridor of evidence. Okay. So allow people to come to determination of what they were finding on their own and then at the right time introducing then weekly team meetings of all the detectives together with the analysts where they would start sharing information. It was 
chilling really at times to see it drop into effect. So a detective would go on to give the update of their investigation and the fact that, well, what happened in my case was, according to the medical evidence, the collapse took place at this time. At this time, Lucy, Lucy Letby's designated nurse went on a break, handing over care to Lucy Letby. The parents left and the child collapsed. To hear another detective go, oh my God, that's exactly what happened in my case. And then, yeah. and then, and then, and then you start building that, that realism of, my God, somebody independently, this has been investigated mm-hmm. in isolation. And now people are saying, my God, that is exactly what I've seen. Because it's quite hierarchical, a murder investigation normally, isn't it? Yes. And yet you were giving each detective this empowerment to say, mm. that's yours. Yes. And then all of a sudden you brought them back mm. without any sharing. Yes. And suddenly they were sort of, you, you called it chilling. Mm. Yes. These overlaps started to come. Yes. I mean, they, these really experienced detectives that I work with and I have the privilege of working with at Chester, and they, they really know their job. So I was, it was not a problem for me to say, go and do that investigation. They didn't need that direction every day. I was confident that they could go and investigate with an open mindset. When we did that weekly briefing, put it together, and they were able then to initially get that information from Dr. Evans about that's the date and time of the collapse. They could go again to the Countess and start building that and then reconstructing that shift, speaking to everybody who was in and out in that shift. And that's when we got the realisation of I was on a break and and um, somebody left and somebody saw something and you know it started to really build the evidential picture and then at the same time our analysts who you've seen in court yeah. did an incredible job aren't they something yeah, m- minute amazing. by minute they're amazing aren't yeah. they they really really are something they were able to pull together the rotors and the swipe data but it came to that point where a decision had to be made so i declared criminality and therefore the only way to speak to lucy Letbin was under arrest. People say, why do you need to speak to her at that point? Because our evidence suggested she's the one there at all of the events, and therefore she's our biggest source of information. She's our biggest source of evidence. Whether or not at that point she's a killer, but she's certainly able, on the scheme of it, if you asked anybody to say, well, have you spoke to her? Because she's been there the most. So, But we've got to afford the rights of a suspect. So Mm. she had to come in under arrest, so we arrested her. How was she during that process? She was emotionless. She cooperated. She answered the questions. She was clinical. Yeah, this is somebody that's never been involved with the police before in her life. And she's arrested for murder. And she's, I think at the time, you know, eight murders, six attempted murders. I think it was her first arrest. And then she's brought into custody. And she's subject of a warrant to further detention and at no point did she appear to be struggling with with anything she was quiet she wasn't obstructive but she answered the questions she dealt with everything um controlled control we had this conversation didn't we liz about this level of control composure calmness just as human beings we were sort of saying can you imagine you know, I'd be screaming and shouting. And Where's the banging on the table saying, well, if you're saying these babies have been killed, I've cared for these babies, go and find the killer. Yeah. yeah. But it's not me. You know, there was none of that. It was just, there was very much an acceptance of you're going to come and knock on my door at some point. Okay. And then do you think then I've got the right, you've got the right person? You must think that's... <laughs> 
I mean, I was sure at that point. Yeah. But at the first point of at, arrest. At the, yeah, the analytical. So I was sure that if it was somebody that had done it, yeah. she was the only one who could have done it. So we were still open-minded, and that's what we're really interested in, that first mm. arrest and interviews, because could she have told us something that we were going to go, all oh, right, Oh, okay. right, that makes sense. Let's Off go and tell the direction. experts that then. Yeah. And let's... So we were, we were still open-minded as to whether we would find an explanation because we hadn't yet received evidence from the radiologist. We hadn't yet cons- uh, received information from, from the pathologist or the endocrinologist or the hematologist. So we had one expert's evidence at that point. So we're waiting for her to fill in the gaps. Mm. Go on then, Lucy. You're a good nurse. You tell us mm. what it is, and then we can take that back. Mm. So was I satisfied at that point? If we confirmed inflicted harm, that she was the only person that could have done it, yes. But was I certain of inflicted harm? 100% I couldn't be because we still had inquiries ongoing. Very confident of inflicted harm based on the evidence we had so far. Yes, I was. Mm. And then obviously we we uncover a huge amount of exhibits that we didn't expect to find, notes and diaries and phones and... I mean, a a treasure trove of evidence that was. You can't have believed your eyes. No, not at all. And and still, when people are following your podcast, for example, and they they say to me, God, does she have all that? Yes. You know, it's it's crazy to understand, isn't it, that that's what was there waiting. For you Um, to find. Yes. I mean, obviously the trial heard that she was obviously enjoying the attention. Mm. Have you come across anything else in her background that might have... Driven yeah. her to do this? No, she, she clearly does love the attention. I think she's loved the intention of a trial as well. And I think we've seen the, the spurious outbursts of emotion, which shows that she likes the attention. But I think overall, why she's done it, I think just to, to reuse her own words, she is evil and she did this. Without her telling us why, if we're looking for why, then, well, she wrote it down. And in my view... She wrote it down and left it for us to find. Yeah. She knew the police were investigating yeah. Operation Hummingbird. She knew that her colleagues had been spoken to by police. And for me, she knew at some point we were going to be speaking to her. So either recklessly or intentionally, she's wrote it down for it to be found, I think. she's not a stupid person, is she? No, she's not. No. No, she's intelligent and she's articulate and we've seen that she can do what she can do. She was good at what she did when she wanted to do it correctly. And you mm. could tell that from the way she, she wrote her hospital records. Furthermore, you could tell the way she intentionally misled doctors mm. on hospital notes, just how smart she was mm. to be able to write things down at the time to mislead doctors into believing that a child was coming towards a collapse to intentionally mislead clever doctors and colleagues she's clever but to write that down and to leave it there with the knowledge as you say that you're looking at this she's been moved Mm. it's a small community people talk did she want you to find it well exactly you know that's that's the question we ask ourselves isn't it you know did she want it found did she want the notoriety that she's got? The prosecution talks about her enjoying playing God, yes. and the prosecution said she got she got a thrill out of that. 
in that sense, she fits the mold. Mm. In a lot of other ways, she doesn't because she's not an oddball. She's not someone who's at work without any friends. Mm. What we've seen is that, you know, she's decided to attack a victim. I'm not saying she, she picks her victim before, mm. but there's certainly an element of once she's picked a victim, however she's done that, whether it's opportunity or however she's decided to do it, but once she's decided to do it, if the outcome hasn't been what she's wanted, she's gone, gone again and again to try and do it, which, which brings us back to controlling. She will have this label as the worst child killer in British history. You know, it's often thrown around, isn't it? It's every parent's worst nightmare, but this is every parent's worst nightmare. She's a monster, isn't she? I mean, there's no other word, really, is there? No, I don't think there is. I wonder whether you would want to just pay some sort of tribute to your team. It's the first time, I think, from an investigative point of view, we get to stand back and actually realise the gravity of actually what we've done. And the gravity of this is it's exceptionally sad and really horrific. I think I already said they're an incredible bunch of people. The way they've supported the families, the way that they have continued to build the evidential case, removing their own emotion out of it. And that's been, that's really difficult. A case like this, you run the risk of it, of it failing really through administrative or clerical reasons and the jury not getting to a point where they will make a decision on it. And that's what you wait for. But with, with this team, you know, they've all put their own emotion to one side to stay clinical. So the evidence has been true um, and they've not been drawn into speculation or opinion, but to continue to just follow the evidential chain, which we asked them to do. And to be even at trial now, as we've seen, to be away from their homes, away from families for such a period of time, makes me proud to be a part and just play my part as, as the wheel went round. And I, I was only going to ask finally whether you wanted to say anything about this jewellery. <laughs> wow, how do you do that? I, I don't know. I mean, Liz, you've sat they've there. Given, well, they've given 10 months of their lives pretty much, haven't they've, they? They've given everything and they've listened to it and more importantly, they've understood it because they've wanted to and, and they've just listened attentively, they've focused and they've stayed with it and, you know, I'm really, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them, what they've done for the parents. Thank you so Thank much you. for talking to us, Thanks Paul. very much. Yeah, for really appreciate Thank your you. time. Thank you. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Liz, that was Detective Superintendent Paul Hughes. And I think there's loads of things in there that I thought were really interesting, just to pick up on yeah. a few of them, really. We were really curious in the trial, it never came out, really, of the moment 
that this all unraveled. And it was that letter, that letter that arrived on the chief constable's desk that then was passed down to Paul Hughes. And suddenly this starts to unravel for Lucy Letby. And the investigation obviously took a really long time. And you heard Paul say there that even when she was arrested the first time, he couldn't be sure 100% that there'd been inflicted harm Mm. because the process of analysing the medical notes of every baby, pulling together the strands of information. He talked about the police analysts who did the rotors, the swipe data, you know, who was where on what shift, where was Lucy Letby when this baby collapsed? Oh, the designated nurse was on a break, so she was covering, you know, everything that that took such a long time to come together. So even a year into their investigation, when they took the decision to make it a criminal investigation Mm. and a murder investigation... And they thought, well, we need to speak to Lucy Lett because she's the nurse that's on duty every time. If anyone knows something, she does. I mean, I think probably at the back of the police's minds, we know from talking to them Mm. that in a way they hoped that there was an alternative explanation. They just assumed there would be, didn't they? For the family's sake, because nobody really wanted to go and tell those parents, we think someone's murdered or tried to murder your baby. And they were hoping that the experts would turn up an alternative explanation. They were hoping Lucy Letby in that first interview might say, oh, have you considered this or have you considered that? And it was only really after those first sets Mm. of interviews and after, like Paul said, when they got... Not only Dowie Evans is expert analysis, then they got Sandy Bowen in, and mm. then they got Professor Arthur's in, the radiologist, and Professor Marnaridis, the pathologist. Only when all those reports came in and they were building and building the case did they realise, you know, oh my God, we've got a serial killer yeah. on our hands. He talked a bit there, and it was obvious every day in the trial, just that reconstruction of each moment of each shift that related to these babies was the most unbelievable, meticulous, painstaking, Forensic. dogged yeah. work. And in fact, in our podcast episode after the verdict, really, we heard from DCI Nicola Evans. And she said in that episode, you know, Lucy Letby just didn't think of the lengths that they would go to, to yeah. be sure. We've seen from the prosecution case that they believed that she was so manipulative that she altered the notes to make it look like, you know, she was doing something else at a different time. DCI Evans said that she believed that Letby would never, ever imagine that they would go and look at the medical notes, the nursing notes, and put everything together, how they did in such a Mm. forensic, meticulous way to prove that she was the one behind all these deaths and collapses. The other thing that I think really came to mind when he said it, and you could hear it in his voice really, was just, you know, he talked about scratching his head at Chester, not knowing how to do this because it was so enormous. And of course, if they'd done them all as one big investigation, of course, the evidence about each baby's collapse or death would have been tainted by another one if they'd worked as a as one big yeah, team. So he talks about the sterile corridor, I think he yeah, talks about, and, mm. you know, investigating each case in isolation which was obviously crucial, you know, because otherwise the defence team would have argued, you know, well, this person's evidence is contaminated because they're confusing baby A with baby C. And so, you know, tribute to Cheshire Police for what they've done, really. It's such a difficult and, like you said, massive investigation. Mm. For them to get to this right result was a tribute, really, to their team. 
those chilling moments when they had a team briefing. They all came to those briefings and that was the moment where they were saying, well, that was actually, that was my case. Yeah, you imagine sitting in that imagine. room and saying, oh, well, my nurse was on a break when yeah. when the baby collapsed or my parents had gone to get some food or my parents had gone to pick their kids up from school. And the realisation that, you know, the people that were in the room with the baby most of the time had, had left and let me was on her own with that child. You can imagine, like, kind of like the hairs on the back of your yeah. neck standing up when you were in that room full of detectives. And them sort of looking at each other as these overlaps emerged and it becomes really clear what they might be dealing with. And again, to go back to that letter, obviously sparked by the consultants who we've heard so much about, the Gang of Four. Yeah. They didn't give up trying to get to the truth. No, and we don't really know the exact timeline of what happened in between Lucy Letby being taken off the ward and the consultants going to the management saying, you must call in, please. Mm. We suspect that they essentially forced the hand of management. Yeah, I mean, I think what we did hear in court, Liz, was that the consultants were asked to apologise to Lucy Letby. What the trust was saying was, well, we've done an investigation, a HR investigation, and we've found no evidence. So we think she can resume working. They were planning to put her back on the neonatal unit. And, for and you should apologise to her for and, yeah. the way you've treated her. And in fact, we have sat down and done a really in-depth interview with Dr John Gibbs, which we're going to be bringing you in another episode in the next couple of days. But he does make the point to us in that interview that they did write that letter. They had no choice but to write that letter. They've been vindicated, those Mm. consultants, by these verdicts. You know, they obviously realised that something terrible was happening on that neonatal unit. We've talked before about the whistleblowing policy in this case has failed. You know, they tried to blow the whistle on numerous occasions and we will hear in episodes to come and we have heard in previous episodes that there are calls for that to be looked at. Why that whistleblowing policy did not work, why she was allowed to be on the ward for so long after babies were collapsing and dying and consultants were saying, hang on a minute, we're really worried. The sad truth about this case is after those doctors went to management and said that this nurse is the common factor and she was the only one on duty when these babies collapsed or died, that other babies were harmed Mm. and other babies died. And Dr Gibbs actually said in his evidence, you know, the the triplet shouldn't have died. And that was the tipping point. So there will be consequences, you would imagine, for the Countess and those managers. We should add here that we have tried to speak to every single manager, Liz. That was named in court. And so far, none of them have wanted to speak to us. No. Yeah, that's correct, Caroline. We have tried to approach Tony Chambers, Alison Kelly, Karen Reese, and Ian Harvey, and none of them have been prepared to talk to us. In fact, they've been vehemently opposed to talking to us. Correct. There will be an inquiry, a non-statutory inquiry, and we do know that the four consultants named in court who we have tried to speak to, they have said they will cooperate with any kind of inquiry. So hopefully the questions that we and all of our listeners and everyone following this story is asking 
will be asked during an inquiry and maybe we'll start to get some answers to some of those questions. So that's it for episode 54. You can catch more of our post-verdict episodes on Mail Plus or wherever you usually get your podcasts. You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow me at Liz Hull or send us an email at thetrialofluciletby at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline. See you then. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.